Washburn from Indianapolis and Cleveland, Ohio. How are you, Jonathan? I'm doing excellent. How are you doing today? Doing good, man. So uh, we've been off for a couple weeks. Jonathan's recovered, and he is back up to uh, 100% is just what he told me before we got on air. So, uh, Jonathan, we've got an easy topic for you today. It's going to be fun. I think you're going to be able to really explain things to people who uh, maybe have no idea and maybe, you know, they don't care, but maybe you can share why they should care and, and a little bit more detailed. So, uh, what is Fanny? What is Freddie? What is Ginny? And what do they mean? Awesome. All right. So, these are some fun questions. So, um, Fanny, Freddie, and Ginny are what we call GSEs. They are government-sponsored entities. Um, and they create for the sole purpose of buying mortgage loans from mortgage lenders and banks so that mortgage lenders and banks can continue giving out loans. So let's, let's for instance, um, let's say a bank has, you know, $10 million in its account that it can use to loan out money to different people. Banks exist really to loan out money. That's the only way that banks really make money. That and like charging me 40 bucks for overdraft fees when you overdraft by three bucks, right? Um, but really, they exist to, to loan out money. Well, if a bank has $10 million to, to loan out money, um, but, and, and let's say they then give out 10, $1 million loans. Over the course of 30 years, if they, if they collected payments on those loans, they would make their money back, you know, Times four, right? Times five. They would do quite well. The problem is if they give out all $10 million of their loan, now they don't have any money that they can use to, to loan somebody a loan to, to, to give somebody a loan next week, right? So what, what happens is a bank will give out a loan, right? And then its goal is to, as quickly as possible, sell that loan to somebody else so they can get the money back so they can start giving out more loans, right? So just as like a crude example, my goal as a bank is to give out a $200,000 loan to someone to buy a house. Once we give that loan, once that loan is approved, once that loan is funded, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to talk to Fannie or Freddie or Ginny, usually one of these government-sponsored entities, and say, hey, I've got this great loan. I would like to sell it to you. Then you, Fanny, can collect payments on it for the next 30 years, and you can give me the money for the loan so I can turn around and give somebody else a loan. Right. So I might give out a $200,000 loan. I'll sell it to Fanny for $210,000. Then they will collect payments on it for the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years, however long that person has that loan, so that I now have my money. I can pay myself, and then I can give $200,000 out to somebody else again next week. Um, Fanny and Freddie exist to compete with each other, right? If there was only one government-sponsored entity that was available to buy these loans from banks and lenders, then there wouldn't be competition, 
And theoretically, they could just like, you know, give whatever they wanted, right? And they could start ripping off banks or, or you know, paying them less than what those, those loans are actually worth. So they created Fannie first, and then they created Freddie to compete with Fannie to teach them both off, right? Fannie and Freddie sometimes have different guidelines, which enables one to have a leg up on another on when it comes to certain loans. So for instance, um, Freddie says we only, if you, if you have $10,000 of student loans, um, Freddie only makes us hit you for 0.5% of those loans as a monthly payment. Fannie makes us hit you for 1% of those loans. So if I want to sell a loan to Fannie, that loan has to comply to Fannie's guidelines. So I would have to hit you for 1% of your student loans in those guidelines in order to sell it to Fannie. If I want to sell a loan to Freddie, I have to buy by their guidelines. Fannie and Freddie buy conventional loans. Ginny, Ginny May, um, that buys government loans. So VA loans, FHA loans, and USDA loans are bought by um, Ginny May. So that's kind of how th- that all works. That is why those things exist, so that banks can, can, can turn around and keep lending money, and so they never run out of money. Makes sense. So, uh, what is uh, what is Ginny in all of this? You got Fatty, Fanny, and Freddie is kind of you know what you were really getting into. But where does Ginny fall in the mix? Yeah. So, so again, Ginny Ginny buys government. So if you're doing a conventional loan, your loan is going to abide by Fannie or Freddie guidelines. If you're doing an FHA loan or a USDA loan or a VA loan, um, it will have to buy, abide by Jenny May guidelines, right? According to HUD, according to USDA, according to, to the VA. So Jenny doesn't buy conventional loans. They only buy um, government loans, the government kind of loans, like USDA, FHA, and, and VA loans. Interesting. Okay. Um... So, can you tell me when you uh, when you're going and, and trying to pick one loan over over another, which one do you find is the one you more you know use more of? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, I will always compare both because um, one of them always has better pricing than the other. And okay, it's not the same one every time, right? You know, Fannie might have better pricing on a $150,000 loan for a 740 credit score. And Freddie might have better pricing for a $250,000 loan for a 780 credit score, right? So they're always different. So when, I, when I'm when i running my findings, um, you know, I'll, I'll run it Fannie first because it's simpler. Then I'll run it Freddie second. And then um, I'll compare pricing and I'll use all of the different things available, right? So sometimes we have to go Freddie. Because this person has, maybe this person's, um, you know, a teacher, they've got $120,000 in student loans. So if I was going to hit them for 1% of their student loans, $1,200 a month payment, we might not be able to qualify. But I can qualify them with only a $600 a month payment. So we'll go Freddie in that instance, because they have that different guideline. And um, hopefully the Freddie pricing on that loan is better. It might not be, but hey, it's, it's better to, to be able to do be able to have an approval than to not get an approval, right? So I would actually say most loan officers probably go Fannie more often for the simple reason that it's easier. Uh, in the loan software, excuse my, excuse my daughter, she's having a bad time right now. Um, you know, for, for most, for some reason, um, most of the, the software that most lenders use, like is 
automatically set up to like put all the information into Freddy nice and easily. If you want to go Freddy, you have to take like 45 seconds to fill out an extra form. It's not hard at all. But um, running the Freddy findings can be a little bit longer um, than running the, the, the Fanny Fresh findings. For some reason, their software is just easier to use. So um, a lot of times, uh, most people will start out Fanny. Um, here's like a, a, a little load officer tip, though. I have so many times, you know, I've, I've been in, I've been in Facebook, I'm in a lot of Facebook groups with lots of other loan officers. And, you know, so many times people will be like, hey, I got this loan, good credit, low DTI, uh, money for, for a down payment. I can't get it to go approved eligible in Fannie. What should I do? More often than not, they'll be like, hey, run Freddie. And they'll come back five minutes later. Oh, Freddie likes it. We're good to go. Right? So for some reason, Freddie seems to have slightly lower standards. For approvals, um, which is probably why in a lot of cases Freddie's price is a little bit higher. Um, you know, another thing we'll we'll look at is appraisal waivers. I think we talked about this a few weeks ago. Right. Like a great unknown. Nobody knows why or how or when you're gonna get an appraisal waiver. But I'll always run findings on both Fanny and Freddie on every what I do just in case because sometimes Fanny will give it and Freddie won't. And sometimes Freddie will give it and Fanny won't. You know, sometimes they'll like, hey, we got an appraisal waiver with this, with Fanny, but pricing is better with Freddie, and you have to do an appraisal. What do you want to do, right? And, you know, that's what we'll have to, to kind of compare those, those, those routes when we get there. Okay, so um, as an individual, you know, I'm looking at my one clothing statement or two, just as a, a bill, you know, every month that I look at my mortgage. Are you able to tell who has your loan? Uh, on either of those kind of documents, or is it only the back end, like what you see? Yeah, it's going to be on the back end, right? So, um, yeah, basically the way it works is I, I'm going to I'm going to originate the loan and set up the loan in a way that that I know will conform to Fannie or Freddie standards, right? That's what we call a conforming loan. If it conforms to one of these standards set up by Fannie, Freddie, or Ginny, it's a conforming loan. Okay. So all I need to do on the front end is make sure that it conforms to um, their guidelines. Once we close the loan, then we'll actually send it, you know, sometimes we'll sell it directly to Fannie Mae, right? Okay. Sometimes we'll sell it directly to Freddie Mac, right? This is what um, certain lenders are called direct lenders. Cross Country Mortgage, where right. I work, is a direct lender. We are a direct lender, which means we can sell directly to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But you still Other send times, the bill every month, right? To the homeowner. We do, yeah. Yeah, we will still service the loan for forever so that you, you can keep paying us. Sure. Right? But um, Fannie Mae own your loan. Okay. Freddie Mae own your loan. Or one of like 12 other banks may actually come in and buy the loan. Okay. Um, so kind of what happens, like Penny Mac is a big one, you know, Wells Fargo, Chase, like some of your bigger banks, um, depending on all of the different particulars with the loan, um, there's, this, there's this whole secondary market out there that's looking at loans and they're going to fight for it, right? Mm-hmm. So if, you know, if, if there's uh, a loan that the, the buyer put 25% down and they had an 805 credit score and the DCI was 10 over 12, all the banks are going to fight for that loan because it's like, oh, wow, this person is almost certainly going to pay their mortgage. This person's not going to foreclose compared to that, you know, that little bit uh, 
more creative 583 FHA loan that we did where they were they got a gift for the three and a half percent down payment. Um, banks or, or the secondary market may not pay as much for those loans because they are seen to be a little bit riskier. Um, and this specifically is why people with better credit scores have access to lower interest rates because um, we will get, you know, we will get more money on the secondary market when we sell that. So we don't need as much money from you up front. Whereas when we give somebody, when we work with somebody with a lower credit, score, we can't get as much money on the secondary market for that. We need to get more money from you up front. Interesting. All right. Well, um, speaking about pricing. So, um, when you're kind of pricing that out, uh, to somebody, uh, a couple of episodes ago, we did, um, basically where, where people would need to, um, fit in a box, you know, and you, you weren't able to kind of change your pricing structure because of a situation or, or such. So, um, do you check those markets as to what that person could make you prior to giving them a, 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 a number and saying, Hey, I can do it for this much. Like, does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, uh, it is, it is not legal for me as a loan officer to just like give people whatever rate I want to give them. Right. <laughs> um, okay. Because that's, that's where we get into discriminatory practices. So what we do is we have these buckets, right? Here's, here's a lead that I got for free. It's my mom. I didn't pay anything to get that lead at all, you know, other than, you know, being her son for 34 years. So when it's my mom and I didn't pay anything to get that lead, I can use this bucket over here, which has better pricing because it did that, that lead didn't cost me anything, right? Versus over here... I'm spending money on marketing to get this lead to come in through Zillow or come in through Realtor or come in through something else. Maybe I sponsored a golf tournament and I got the lead from the golf tournament. I spent money to get that lead. Yeah. So I'm going to use this bucket over here where my marketing bucket is. Cause like, hey, I had to spend some money. So need to need to make sure that I can still make myself. Right. So I'll have different buckets depending on how much marketing I had to spend. Um, to get that lead. Um, and that's how that works. Yeah, I wish I could just, you know, willy-nilly be like, oh, I'll give you the second bucket and give you the first bucket and you give you the third bucket. But then all of a sudden, that works out to, hey, why did these, you know, why did these four people over here get this best loan and then these six people, you screwed them over, right? Why did that happen? Like, well, no, I can't make those choices. I'm, I'm you know, the, 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 what is the source of the lead? That's the bucket. Right, but so the pricing is different though for Freddie and and uh, Fanny. So do you have to check those pricing as to what they would accept prior to giving the amount or the percentage to the yeah. borrower? Um, it's, uh, that's going to be kind of difficult to explain. So basically, we'll get a sheet from Fanny or from Freddie that says uh-huh. here's what the rates are for this for this credit score. Okay. Right? Um, and it'll go from like, um, it would technically go from zero to a hundred. Um, basically whatever is priced at 100, mm-hmm. that's what we call your, your par price, right? So let's say three and a half percent is priced at 100. Um, then 4% might be priced at 101. That means I could give you a 4% and 
give you 1% of the loan amount back to help you cover your closing costs, mm-hmm. right? Or maybe a 3% is priced at 99, right? That means if you want to pay 1% in discount points to get the lower rate, you can get the 3%. Right. Okay. Fanny so will send a sheet out like that, right? So every day or multiple times a day or every month? It updates every day. Okay. Yeah, it updates. Um, it, it updates six, eight, ten times a day. Okay. Um, you know, when, when the, when, uh, the director of the CSPB comes out and makes a statement, rates will get better or they'll get worse. <laughs> right. Yeah. When, um, when the secretary of treasury comes out every month, and gives his monthly update. The rates will jump up or they will jump down. When the stock market crashes, the rates will change. When the stock market goes up, the rates will change. It changes every day. Okay. Now, it, it doesn't usually, it doesn't usually change from like a three and a half to a 4% in one day. Okay. What usually is going to happen is, hey, right now a three and a half is pricing at 100. Up something has happened. Now the three and a half is pricing at 99.8. So now you have to pay, you know, 0.2 discount points to get the same rate. Or now it's pricing at 100.2. We'll give you 0.2 discount points back to cover your closing costs. Got it. The same rate. There have been a few times in the last year, I think three different days the last year, where we had like 100 basis point swings in one day, and those days were terrible. And yeah. But yeah, that's, that's genuinely how it works. And yeah, Fannie will give you a rate, Freddie will give you a rate, and then I'll look at those buckets, like on my own, and be like, okay, so then... Um, my branch will be able to get this much profit on this because this is how much I spent versus it'll be able to get this much profit on this because this is how much I spent. So that's how that kind of works. Okay. Um, then on that question or uh, on that explanation, one of the questions I had was um, if you were to, um, well, I should have wrote that one down because now it's escaped me. <laughs> um <laughs> Well, you get calls all the time, I'm sure, that says, you know, what's your rates today? And, you know, it's like, well, it depends on who you are, what you're putting down, your credit score, all of that uh, information. I know what I was going to ask you. So it's um, common where uh, you buy a house and it takes, let's say, 30 to 60 days. And if the rates are doing this, you know, changing um, do you guys at cross country have a, like a one-time float down, uh, where if the rates, you know, change in the, in a better direction, the buyer can say, Hey, I, I want to keep going the same ship that, you know, we're going, but I, I want a one-time, you know, lower rate. Is that something you guys offer there? Or, uh, is that, is that not a feature? Yeah. So, so we do have the ability to float down rates, but it, it usually, it, it, it usually doesn't change enough in 30 days to make it possible. Because basically, um, basically we can float you down, mm-hmm. but it costs you a little bit of money, right? So, so basically what, what would need to happen is um, it would need to float down enough that even by paying the fee, you can still get that better rate without okay. paying anything extra. So, so let's, let's, say, um, let's say we lock you in at a three and a half, mm-hmm. right? And then over the course of a month, the three point three seven five gets, you know, a hundred dollars cheaper. Well, our float down price might be two hundred fifty bucks. So if it only got a hundred bucks cheaper, it wouldn't make sense to do that. But if it got a thousand dollars cheaper, right? Now that float down fee of two hundred fifty bucks 
you're still making money on that. Rate. Okay. It's a little bit complicated. A few times in the last year, I've been able to do it. Usually, the rates don't change enough to um, to make that um, feasible. But it does occasionally. Happen, yeah. Okay. Um, we'll touch on more of that in a little bit. Uh, what is a, uh, you mentioned conforming loans. So what is, uh, what does it mean if someone says it's a non-conforming loan? How would that work? Yeah. So non-conforming loans exist. That simply means that they don't conform to the standards that Fannie and Freddie and Jenny, um, have, have created. Okay. So Fannie says, Hey, if you're self-employed, you have to have two years of tax in order for us to use any of that in. Okay. Um, well, maybe you have somebody that just went self-employed last year and they are killing it, right? And you can tell by their bank statements that like they're they're bringing in $20,000 a month or something. But they haven't had their business long enough to, um, to qualify for a Fannie or Freddie conventional loan. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they have, but as many business owners are like, um, you know, are, are prone to do, they write off so much money in their taxes that it doesn't look like they make as much money as they actually make. Right. So there are these other um, types of loans that exist out there called non-conforming loans. And they're like, hey, you don't have to conform to the government guidelines to, to get a loan from us. Okay. Here, we'll just look at 12 months of your bank statements. And we'll count up all the deposits you've made in your bank statements for the last 12 months. And... You know, we'll hit you for an expense factor because obviously you're not pocketing all of that, but that's mm-hmm. the income we'll use. So if you're depositing $20,000 a month in your bank statement, yeah. we'll hit you for an expense factor of like 70%, but now that means we can use $14,000 a month for your income. Okay. Even though on your taxes, it only looks like you made 600 bucks last year. Right? <laughs> Which happens a lot more than you would think. So we can give them a non-conforming loan where we just look at their bank statements instead of their taxes. The, yeah. the trade-off here is that non-conforming loans have higher rates and less desirable terms. There's a lot more likely to be like arms, you know, adjustable rate mortgages as okay. opposed to fixed rates. Um, but oftentimes it's, it's, it's worth it for the person to do because they're like, well, I made 200 grand last year, but I was able to make it look like I only made 20 grand. Yeah. So I didn't pay hardly anything in taxes. Right. I'll happily pay or I'll happily pay a higher interest rate my mortgage if I can continue not paying the government any taxes on the money I'm making, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, there's usually a trade-off. That's why would somebody choose to take a 6% interest rate when they can get one of the free? Well, they don't have to pay taxes. Right? And it's another taxes, deduction. Right? It's a higher deduction. Correct. Correct. There you go. There you go. There's lots of people are out there playing the tax game. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how that works. Okay. Um, non-conforming loans simply mean they don't conform to the, to the standards that you know Fannie and Freddie set up, but you know they, they conform to it, they'll they'll have different requirements. Like that bank statement program, you're probably going to have to put at least fifteen, maybe twenty five percent down. Oh wow! Get into one of those with a three or five percent down payment. Okay. Um, you know they might have a lower debt to income ratio. You might have to have money in reserves. You might have to have you know better credit, right? Yeah. But, you know the. the they would what they would be what what I would call like the old school common sense lending, right? Okay. Where you go in and you sit across from someone and you're like, "Hey, here's what I make," and you yeah. smile and you wear your best suit and tie. And they're yeah. like, "Okay, I trust you. I'll give you the loan." That's kind of <laughs> how those work. Well, and then they also they put more money down too. You know, that was the other thing that uh, back then you you didn't buy a house until you had your twenty percent, and you know, so uh, I get that. Um, okay, you mentioned uh, that banks get their money back. 
uh, government, you know, banks, it sounds like they get their money back immediately because they, they sold a hundred thousand dollar loan for 10,000. So, so they make their money, but, uh, then the government, they would make their money long term. Okay. So what happens? Mr. And Mrs. Smith, they buy the house and they move, um, you know, shortly thereafter, let's say just the two years. All right. Um, what does that look like for the government? How did they make their money or did they? Yeah. So, um, if if there are instances in which, uh, when a loan is paid off too quickly, Uh the people holding the, the people holding the the paper don't make money. They might actually lose money. Oh, wow. Now remember, I remember, um, so, so let's go back to the first case I gave you. I give someone a $200,000 loan and then someone on the secondary market gives you Mm $210,000 for that because they're like over the next 30 years, I'm going to make really good money on that. Right. Um, now, if if that owner wins the lottery next week and pays off their loan, mm-hmm. they will still get the the people that now own the paper. They'll still get the two hundred grand because they still owe. They still have to get that principal, right? But they won't get any of that interest. So yeah, they could be out like nine thousand five hundred bucks or whatever if they haven't made. You know, they could be out the full ten thousand bucks if, yeah. if they didn't make any mortgage payments, right? So so usually there's like a they'll look at. They'll look at a lot of this stuff, right? Um, they'll, they'll look at how likely are you to pay off your loan mm-hmm. early, right? If, if if you are someone with with like really really excellent credit and tons of money in the bank, and yeah. it looks like you might pay off the loan early, they might actually not give as much money for that loan because they, they won't make as much as the person that's you know almost living month to month. Okay, like yeah, we're gonna stretch this out over the full thirty years and not make all that money. So okay. yeah, there are instances in which. Um, the people that own the paper actually wouldn't make money uh, if if that if that um, loan is paid off too quickly. Yeah. Um, but generally, I mean, the reason banks are doing this is to make money. So generally, they're doing okay. So we don't need yeah. to uh, now cry too much for the. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to cry too much over the you know over the over the two out of you know five hundred instances where the loan is paid off so quickly that the bank didn't make any money on it. Yeah, it'd be interesting to figure out what that uh, rate is. And I'm sure, you know, remember the graphs, you know, of how much interest you pay in the bucket and and it goes down. So it'd be interesting to know how quickly it does get paid off because probably like 90% of what you pay every month goes for interest for the first few years. Um, So anyway, uh, okay, so what's the difference between a mortgage banker and a mortgage broker? Great question. So a typically a banker is going to mainly write loans for the lender or bank that he works for. Right? So I work like across the country. Yeah, I work across okay. the country and most of the time I'm going to be writing loans where cross country lends the borrower our own money. Okay. Right? Um a broker is somebody that's almost like a is almost like a third party. They're like a go between between the buyer and a bunch of different banks, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, a broker might work with four or six or ten different banks, and he'll talk to the buyer, find out everything that you know is know, and then he may shop around to see which bank has the best deal, has the best rate for that buyer. Right. There are advantages and disadvantages of both sides, right? Let's hear them. The advantage of the 
Yeah, the advantage of the broker side um, is typically uh, that you're going to get a little bit better rate, right? Because you can shop around the six or eight or ten different banks. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, well, this this bank today they're doing buy one get one free, right? So let's go with that. Uh-huh. Um, the disadvantage, oftentimes, of being a broker is like you don't have very much control. You're okay. working with someone, with another bank, with another bank's processors, with another bank's underwriter, with another bank's closer, right? So, um, you know, for, for a guy like me that, that primarily does purchases, I like working for, for my own bank where we lend our own money because I know all my underwriters and processors, like I have them on speed and I can just give them a call, like, hey, hey can you talk this one at the front of the line? It's closing today. Can you help us out with that? So you have more control over the process a lot of times with um, with your own bank. Um, Explain that to uh, you know for a, a buyer. You know why is the control yeah. uh, such a big deal? I mean, when 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 you say that, uh, I don't know that people understand the under. You know, you go in, you think you're going to get a loan, and he, everything sounds good, sounds good, sounds good. Five days before closing, something happened. And that, you know, that's, that's what people, I think they don't understand. Yeah. They, they, they got a, a, a little bit better rate, you know, and it'd be interesting to know if you could, you know, share experience of, of really what that means, uh, monthly in a better rate, but then what the risk really is involved in that for, for a buyer in this market. Yeah. So specifically in this market, um, I have seen people miss closing dates and move down the house, right? You know, I've seen people, yeah. hey, let's let's go on a contract. We're going to close at the end of June. And then at the end of June, we didn't close because the bank wasn't doing a job or something happened. Mm-hmm. And the lesson is like, you know what? If I put this house back on the market, I could probably get 10 thousand. Yeah. That's what the market's doing. Right. So, sorry, you didn't close in time. You're in breach of contract. I'm out. So now you've paid for an inspection. You've paid for an appraisal. You've hired movers. You've done all sorts of different things. And now you've sold your house, and now you're about to be homeless because you weren't able to close on time. Yep. Right? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very important when you're purchasing a house, because just think about all the dominoes that are at play, right? Right. You're selling your house to somebody um, so that you can buy this person's house. And that person is selling you his house so he can buy this person's house so that person can buy another house. Right. right. You might have a domino chain of four or five, six, I've seen up to eight transactions contingent on one transaction here at the beginning that has to drop before the rest of the dominoes can fall. Yeah. And if this one transaction gets messed up, you now have seven other transactions, 14 other families, 14 other realtors, uh, seven other title companies, seven other banks, upset, mad, angry, and moving enough, even in the, in the instances where everything is completely smooth and you hit your closing date and you hit your closing time on perfectly, Moving is still super stressful. Right. It's unbelievably stressful. <laughs> I saw on Twitter this morning, someone was like, moving is one of the two worst things that you can do as an adult, and it's not number two. <laughs> and I just laughed because, you know, moving is just not fun, right? So, so yeah, when, I think it's really important um, when, you're, you know, when you're purchasing a home to work with a bank that you know, has control over their process and, and will be yeah. able to close you on time and um, that's, that's a really important thing, especially in this market where, you know, you're going to be competing against 10, 12, 15 other people trying to buy your house. If things don't go completely right, the seller can just say, well, that, 
I got four other people that want to buy the house and I right. spend more on it. So yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, are you guys portfolio loans? Uh, since you guys fund them, is that something that you guys offer? Yeah, so we do have some portfolio products. Um, so, so for those that don't understand what a portfolio loan is, um, most loans we try to give out and then turn around and sell to somebody else, mm-hmm. right? Our portfolio loans are loans that we give out. We actually keep the paper on it ourselves, and we will collect the payments on those for the last so there's a couple portfolio products that are like pretty common. Like a lot of times mm-hmm. doctor's loans are portfolio loans. So a doctor's loan is a special loan for, um, for uh, a brand new doctor, right? And brand new doctors often have like 200, $300,000, $400,000 worth of student loans. Yeah. And when they're starting out, they don't make that much money. Right. Their first three years of residency, they may only make 60000 70000 $80,000. Now, we know that it, as, as a doctor, getting a career as a doctor, it's one of the best careers you can obviously have. Right. And we've, you know, we've done studies that, that show like doctors are one of the single most likely people to pay their mortgages. Right. That's funny. Because we know three years from now, they're going to be making 300K, right? And everything will be fine. Yeah. And, and they often marry other doctors. So now their family's making 600K, right? <laughs> um, right. So, so, you know, they created doctor's loans, which basically, which basically say, hey, if you haven't started paying off your student loans, we can just ignore them. You know, Fannie would make us hit you for 1% of your student loans. Well, if you have 300K in student loans, grand. hit you for a $3,000 payment, right? J- just pretend. And you're, if you're only making 60 grand, like, we can't approve you for anything. Yeah. Right? So a portfolio doctor's loan will basically say, hey, we, we can just pretend like those student loans don't exist. Um because we know you're going to pay us, right? So here's this special loan where we can ignore your student loans, maybe even get you in for like a 0% down payment yeah. or like a 5% down with no mortgage insurance. That's awesome. These are not loans that we can sell to Fannie and Freddie because they don't conform to their guidelines. Okay. But those are loans that like, hey, that's, this is a good loan for us to have. The doctor we can trust is going to pay us back. Yeah. So we'll keep that. We'll keep those loans. Um, typically, a bank will have like a certain amount of money that they can lend out for their portfolio pro- products. Yeah. Because obviously, like, you know, you only have so much money to lend out. So portfolio loans may come and go. Portfolio loans, the terms will change quite often. Yeah. Because those are special loans that the, that the bank will have. Yeah, we have some portfolio loans that are, that are pretty interesting, that are pretty cool. Um, uh, but generally, we're trying to sell off you know, most of the loans that we give out. And that's the way most banks are. Awesome. So, um your uh, portfolio loans. We'll talk about that some other time and you could share, uh, you know, what options are available. Cause I'm sure people would like to, you know, hear and kind of get an idea. Uh, when you're talking about the money that you have set aside for those specific loans, um, I was told one time that a bank has to keep so much money liquid, uh, you know, of what they're lending out. Is that, is that a true statement? Is it still true? Uh, you know, is it like a, sta- a set amount? Um, that kind of thing. Yeah, so that is true. I don't remember the ratios or the amounts that are needed. I know that like FDIC banks have one rule, and then like um, lenders that are underneath the umbrella of the CFPB, uh, they have a different rule, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's there's uh, there's there's typically some sort of limit that says like you know you're not allowed to lend, you know if you if you're only 
if you only have $10 million in your, in your coffers along, you know, most of the time, you can't lend a billion dollars this month, right? We're not sure. going to let you do that. Sure. Yeah, I, I was thinking that it was something like for every dollar, they had to keep a dollar kind of thing. So um, you almost had to, you know, only lend out 50% of what your bank had liquid, and that's yeah, why they wanted it. It's something like that. That makes sense. Yeah, I, again, I don't remember the exact dollars and ratios, but yeah, there's there's definitely rules for what you're able to do. What does that mean uh, when you see that uh, FDIC insured? You know, um, up to two hundred fifty thousand is usually what what you see. What does that mean when you go into a to a bank or when you're you know in this process? Yeah, so I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. I haven't worked at a bank in a long time, but. Um, I'm pretty sure what that means is let's say you have $250,000 in the bank Mm -hmm. and that bank just goes under tomorrow for one reason or another. Um, If they're insured through the FDIC then the FDIC will cover all of the people that had money in that bank up to that $250,000. Okay. So if you have 250 grand in that bank and they're insured for up to 250, you'll get that money back. If you had a million, um, and they're only insured to two fifty. You'll lose. You could theoretically lose seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. So it has nothing to do with the mortgages then that they sell to the government or anything like that. Correct. Yeah, okay. It's just strictly people like banking. Okay. So uh, when should somebody go into their local bank and say, "I need a loan"? Yeah. Great question. So um, it's going to be different for a lot of different people. Um, it's going to depend on what bank you use and what they are good at and what they're not good at. Right. Um, typically, um, let's talk about reasons why you would go into your your local bank. Right. Um, Maybe they have a a really good deal going on right now. Right. So if if you have a special type of account with them, they'll say, Hey, we'll do a free refinance for you. No closing costs. Okay. That's a pretty good deal. Right. Um, Yep. Oftentimes, uh, small loans are really great to get from your local bank as well. So, like, if, if you just want like a small line of credit on your house or something like that, that's a great thing that you can get from from your local bank. Um, mortgages are going to be more hit or miss, right? So, you know, there, there's a there's a very big local bank in my area, mm-hmm. actually the bank that I use, mm-hmm. right? The bank that I personally bank with. Uh, and they have a terrible name with real estate agents. Um, in fact, yeah. I, you know, when I, when I first moved up here, I got a pre-approval with them and I made an offer and the real estate agent said, we will not accept an offer through that bank. Wow. They never closed on time. So, oh, okay. That's crazy. Um, and why is that? Well, because this bank is doing all sorts of things, right? They're doing checking accounts. They're doing savings accounts. They're doing lines of credit. They're doing safety deposit boxes. They're doing land loans. They're doing construction. They're doing all sorts of different things. Um, and so when it comes time to do just like a, re- a regular conventional mortgage, it's going to take them 60 days to get it done because they're doing so many different things. Whereas a mortgage lender or a mortgage broker, all we're doing is mortgages. Yeah. So we're going to be able to close those loans in 20 to 30 days that, that, a, that a bank may not be able to close. Um, those are kind of some of the things to, to work through. Um, I have told many people that have come to me for like, if you're looking to get equity out of your house, the two routes to go are either cash out refinance or a line of credit. Mm-hmm. And 
if you want to do a full cash out refinance, it's great to do that from a lender or from a broker. If you want to do a line of credit, it's almost always better to do that at a local bank or a local credit union. The terms are always better, easier to do, get get you done a lot quicker. I have a lot of different people, you know, in my area that like, hey, I just want to take out like six grand to, you know, change my first floor window. Yeah. Well, I don't think it really makes sense to do a full cash out refi where we have to pay for an appraisal and then you got six grand in closing costs. Yeah. Six grand. I think it's better for you to go do this line of credit. Yeah. So, John, can you do a line of credit? I can, but my line of credit is not very good. You should go to your local bank, your local credit union, get it through there. Okay. Now, if you want to take out $40,000 to pay off twenty grand in debt and then put up a new deck, because decks cost twenty grand now because with the price of lumber, yeah. right? Um, then a cash-out refinance might make sense, and then I'll say, yeah, you should work with me. Um, so it's, it's going to be options. It's going to be mm-hmm. scenario to scenario. Right? Okay. Sometimes it's better to work with a bank. Sometimes it's better to work with a broker. Sometimes it's better to work with a lender. It, it, it really just kind of depends. Okay. Um, so how would one know what questions they should ask, you know, when they're, when they're trying to figure this out and, and how do they know like what red flags to look out for, uh, when they're talking to either banks or brokers, you know, I think the single most important question to ask is how long am I going to be? Okay. So, um, if this is your forever home, like, wow, I love this house and you know, I, you know, uh, you know, we're going to be here for forever. Now, I think it's really important to work with someone that's going to give you, you know, good service and like the lowest cost in the long run. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, but like, let's say you're in a house and you're planning on moving in the next two to three years mm-hmm. and uh, you're just trying to get some cash out, do some home improvements so that you can sell that house. Like in that instance, the, the interest rate really doesn't even matter you're just trying to get out of here with like the lowest amount of closing costs that you can and like the most amount of money in your pocket right now. Um, yeah. So like for like those, those might be instances where it might actually be better take a higher interest rate to lower some of your closing costs, um, you know, or, or you know, do different things like that. But I think that number one question is how long am I going to be here? You know, what are my plans for this? Mm-hmm. I'm going to be here for more than five years. All right. Now I'm going to be making my decisions differently than if I'm only going to be here for two years. Um, another question is, um, so I always, the, the, the example I use is that, uh, there's, there's two types of vacationers. Okay. Right. Um, I would compare myself to my sister. Um, when my sister had been married for like three years, mm-hmm. a trip to Europe. And then when I had been married for about three years, my wife and I also took a trip to Europe. Okay. How do we do this? Well, my sister bought like every single book that existed on traveling to Europe and read them all cover to cover, highlighting things and making notes in her journal. And then after four months of research had created this, this elaborate itinerary down to the hour of where they were going to go to go in Italy, when they were going to go there, what they were going to do there, how much money they had on each thing. That sort of thing. And my sister loved that. And she enjoyed doing that. She may have actually enjoyed planning the trip more than she actually enjoyed the trip. If I remember right, she was a valedictorian though, right? So (laughs) she was, yeah, she's a a pretty smart person, you know, control freak ish. Right. Awesome lady. Um, when my wife and I went to Europe, that didn't appeal to us at all. 
So we booked a trip with a tour company. Wow. And we would get on the bus every morning and they would drive us to the next city and they would tell us what was going on in the next city. And then they'd be like, here, get off the bus. You have five hours to explore Paris. <laughs> we were like, cool, let's go get lost in Paris. Yeah. And then at the end of the night, we got back on the bus. They drove us to our hotel. They checked us in. Right. They, you know, we woke up the next morning. They had bacon made for us. And we said, where are we going today? And they said, we're going to Florence. Right. Um, and that was my favorite type of vacation. And yeah. when I saw my sister about our vacation, that like, I started because she's like, well, you didn't like, you, you uh, no, no, we, we enjoyed it. Right. That's funny. Um, I think there's that, 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 that sort of, you love the plan and the chase versus you just want to have a nice relaxing experience. Yeah. That's going to be a play. Like when it comes to, um, you know, who you're working with to get a mortgage as well. Okay. Right. Um, you know, there are going to be some banks that it is going to be like, you're going to close, but it's going to feel like you were dragged by your feet, <laughs> kicking and screaming for that last three weeks of the process, uh, talking to, to 47 different people, giving oh, people yeah. all sorts of different things. And like, it, it, by the time you, you, you close, you're just like, <sighs> like exhausted. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, Hey, I'm working with you. Hey, you're the only guy I'm working with. I need these three things. Okay, cool. I'll give you updates along the way. Nope, you don't need to do anything right now. I'm talking with your realtor. We got everything under control. Yeah. Um, I think that experience a lot of times, like I said, moving is one of the my least favorite things to do. And it's that way for everyone. So that whole, you know, experience that you have during the mortgage process is super important. So um, yeah, those are those are other questions to ask. Yeah, I think uh the unfortunate thing is I, I worked with somebody for a long time in the mortgage business and I I rarely heard good things and, and many times bad things about how painful, you know, the process was and then I would I would work with other people um, who would use a different lender and rarely did I hear negatives. And I got to just to the point where it was like, you know, I heard so many negatives, it's like we had to we had to change um, you know, kind of our, uh, direction because it is, it's a process. And, and though loans got closed, um, you know, 99% of the time, uh, actually I never had a loan that didn't get closed. There were some, some times when people didn't get approved that should have probably gotten approved. But, um, the issue, uh, I would say is finding, um, finding that out before, right? Cause that's the difficult thing is, um, and I was going to ask that too, is how do you know you're working with the right person? But I feel like a lot of times you don't get to, um, you don't get to know if they're the right person, uh, until you're knee deep in the process and it's, it's almost too late, uh, to get, you know, out of it. Um, and I think that's yeah. what a lot of times lenders do, um, is they they ask for all of the documents up front and and then they get you know everything everything really wrapped up so that the folks seem uh, almost trapped to just ask for another opinion you know throughout the process and um, you know I think it's it's a, always a good thing if if you uh, kind of talk with people you know not just. Uh, not just that lender, but ask, you know, the realtor, like who, who do you recommend? Who have you used before? Who would you not use? You know, that kind of thing, just for uh, kind of perspective. Cause we, we do work with a lot of different people from a lot of different companies. Um, mm-hmm. So um, I think one of the, uh, I think one of the important things along those lines is, you know, 
not every loan is going to be a beautiful, easy loan. It's like, no matter who you're working with, That's not true. every loan is going to be beautiful and easy. Uh, but it's so important to set the proper expectations. Right. Right. Um, you know, I, I, I have called, I have, I have called realtors before and said, look, this loan, I, I can pre-approve this person. There are a lot of hurdles that we have to clear. Mm-hmm. It is going to be, they are going to be complaining about me to you because I'm going to have to get divorce decrees. And I remember this one loan, this is a true story. I, I had this one loan. I was working for a guy in South Carolina and he had been divorced. Uh, he had used, he used to live in Alaska and he got divorced and moved to South Carolina. And we needed a divorce decree. We knew we needed a divorce decree. We got the divorce decree. Everything was good. But there were like two pages missing in this divorce decree. And the only person that had the divorce decree was his ex-wife, who was like, no, I'm not giving you anything. I hate you. Wow. Right? So I had to literally call a courthouse in some random city in Alaska to ask them if they could send over a copy of the divorce decree yeah. two days before closing. Because the ex-wife was being so, you know, uh, unreasonable. Yeah. And I had to end up paying like 200 bucks to get this divorce decree. Then sent overnight to get to us. Wow. And it's like, look, like sometimes it just happens. Yeah. The, 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 the problem is when the loan officer like, oh yeah, don't worry. Everything's fine. Everything's great. This will be no problem. No yeah. big deal. And then all of a sudden at the last minute, this stuff pops up. Like you, you got to set those proper expectations. And, and sometimes I'll even tell the buyer, I'm like, look, I can pre-approve you right now. This, I always tell the buyer that when we're, when we're um, making a mortgage, it's like building a table, right? The table has four legs. It's got a credit. It's got assets. It's got debt to income. It's got income. Um, and sometimes you build a table and it's beautiful. And sometimes you build a table and it's, it needs, Standing and it needs to be painted and our legs are wobbly and it just is not as pretty. And they're like, we're building an ugly table right now. It will stand up. It will function. You can do this. But, you know, you've got a 593 credit score. I'm sorry. It is what it is. There's ways you can improve this over the next couple years. But I'm going to be asking you for a lot more information than I asked your friend who I closed with last week that had an 805. Right. Right? So just bear with me. I know it's going to be annoying. I'm going to be annoying. You're going to be mad at me. I'm going to be mad at you. It's going to happen, but we'll get through it. Just trust me on this, right? So the, the, the proper expectations is, is a super important thing. One thing I was um, going to ask, and I forgot, the um, the whole process of what fits in Fanny's and Freddie's box, um, what would be the process if, um, let's just say you have a rogue lender right rogue lender underwriter processor all of those people um where does the buck stop if let's say you know mr smith he wants to buy this house and who would it be that that would say well yeah he's been at the job for two years or he he makes so much money like what are the processes that you could get away or not necessarily could get away with it but that you could manipulate that um and is it only found out on an audit you know is it only found out if if somebody from the government or is it a third party that audits like what does that process look like great question so um a couple different things could be in play here right the first thing is let's say we approve a loan 
and close alone and fund alone mm-hmm. that Fannie ultimately looks at. And they're like, that doesn't conform to our guidelines. Yeah. Right? That's a big deal, right? That's a huge deal. If a company writes too many of those types of loans, yeah. uh, the company will cease to exist. Okay. All of a sudden, that, that's a ton of money that they're on the books for. That it's gonna, you know, if you got a $200,000 loan, it's going to take you eight years to get that $200,000 back. Everything else will be profit, but you're going to be out that two hundred grand for a while. So if Anna decides not to buy it, a couple things will be in play, right? First thing will be like, did the buyer lie? Right? Did the buyer commit mortgage fraud? You know, most, mm-hmm. the most common type of mortgage fraud is occupancy fraud. Because if you're buying a primary residence, you get a really good interest rate and you only have to put a little bit of money down. Okay. But if you're buying a second home or an investment property, your interest rate's higher and you have to put more money down. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people are like, oh yeah, we're going to sell this current house and move into that one and mm-hmm. be our primary residence. Yeah. Well, come to find out, they never planned on moving in. It was going to be an investment property the whole time. And also, Megan found out if, if, uh, if we find out that the buyer committed mortgage fraud, then uh, things will come down, but will stop on the buyer. Right? Okay. What does that mean? Those are being required to pay the loan in full immediately, like it comes due type thing? Yeah, so they could, yeah, we could definitely require that uh, you have to pay the loan off immediately. Okay. Um, and also, mortgage fraud is punishable by up to 30 years in prison and a million dollar fine. Wow. So, depending on how bad it could be, you know, those are the stakes. Let's say we find that, um, no, it's actually the loan officer that committed mortgage fraud, mm-hmm. right? Um, then that's a case where the loan officer is probably going to be fired, right? Okay. But the bank is on the hook. The bank is on the book for that. Yeah. Right? They got to they gotta pay that loan. Or they got to hold that loan. Um Sometimes it could be a simple case of underwriter error. Yeah. You know, my job is to originate a loan, present what I believe is a loan that abides by all the government's guidelines. Okay. The underwriter looks at all of those guidelines and looks at all the information with a fine tooth comb, and she actually decides, yes, it does abide by those guidelines, or no, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, she is really um, managing risks company, because again, if we, pass, if we give out too many loans that can't be sold to Fannie or Freddie or to other people in the secondary market, yeah. we're going to be in a lot of trouble. This is why the underwriter often has so much power. She's the one that says, yes, we can do this order, no, we can't. Mm-hmm. Um, if she allows something through, you know, again, that would not be good for her, right? So huh. it, it depends on, was this an honest mistake? Was somebody trying to, you know, get one over on somebody else? What really happened here? Obviously, mistakes happen. Yeah. So it's, it's possible that an underwriter and a processor and a loan officer all make an honest mistake on the same file. Okay. In which case, you know, you would think everyone's job would probably be safe, but you may be on like a, a three strikes you're out sort of thing. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of different things that can happen, which is why when we come back to you for the fourth time and we say, I'm sorry, I need that fourth page of the bank statement. You know, you keep sending me with it. You keep sending me that page <laughs> without the fourth page. I need the fourth page. Yeah, and it's frustrating for everyone, but that's why because we have to make sure that when all of the documentation we have, uh, it looks good enough to sell to Fannie and be like, yeah, well, we'll take it. Um, yeah, sometimes that comes up in an audit. Sometimes it comes up in that initial sale 
from the bank to Fannie, right? All right, okay. we want you to buy this loan, and Fannie will be looking through it like, no, this doesn't look. Yeah. You got it. So I actually had to go back after closing sometimes and get an extra piece of information from buyer. Right? Wow. That can be crazy. Like, hey, this house you've been in for three weeks. I know you never wanted to talk to me again. <laughs> I need another bank statement. Well, what happens if I don't give you the bank statement? Yeah. Are you kick me out of my house? No. I really need it, or we're in trouble. I'll get it to you when I get it to you, right? Right. That can be, that can be tough, so... Yeah. So, um, how, uh, one last question on this is, is how, uh, how long are you guys, um, really on the hook? I mean, like seven years, like, could they, cause I'm, I'm sure, you know, you do, you know, a ton of business and every year. And then, you know, they're like, Hey, back in 2007, you did this loan, you know, um, how far back can they go? Do you know? There's a correct answer to this, and I don't remember it off the top of my head. I feel mm-hmm. like it's three years. Okay. It might also be five years. I can't okay. remember. That's a question that, like, you have to know to become licensed, and then you never have to know it ever again. <laughs> Except <laughs> so, for on this podcast, that, it's super important. <laughs> I knew that answer at one point. I can't remember what it is now. But, yeah, there is, there is like, a, a statute of limitations. Okay. Sort of thing, like, um, that, that does come into play. Um, yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, that's all we have time for today, John. Another awesome, uh, you know, interview. I really appreciate your time on this. But uh, what are your positive thoughts for us today? Positive thoughts for us today. Um, yeah, I thought hard about this one this week. Um, try in all things this week and moving forward. Try to focus on the big picture. Um, uh, it's a very common cliche that, you know, so-and-so missed the forest for the tree. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's, it's very, very important to be super detail-oriented to, to see each and every tree. But oftentimes, when we can zoom out and take a big picture view of something, things make a lot more sense. So whether you're, like, reading a book um, or whether you're, you're thinking about relationships with your family and friends, a lot of times it's super easy to get focused on like one small thing that has happened here today or this week when you realize, you know what, this is a friendship we've had for 10 years. We'll get through this, right? You know, this is something that like big picture, everything's going to be okay. Try to have a big picture, 30,000 foot view on things this week so that you can uh, be positive and, and, and get through whatever trials are going to come your way. Awesome. Thanks, John. Talk to you next time. Thanks, sir.